I walked on a beach with the goddess Eris, discussing everything and nothing and how they're the same thing. When I looked behind us, though, I saw that there was sometimes two sets of footprints in the sand, and sometimes only one. I noticed that the times where there was only one were the most challenging times in my life. I asked Eris why she had abandoned me in those turbulent times, and she laughed and laughed. Don't you remember, silly? Those were the times that you insisted we both hop on one leg. And we both laughed, and looking out over the sea of chaos, we embraced the void. I find this void quite calming, actually. It's like, this time the Xanax took me. Your sense of self is crumbling, and it's taking the void down with it. It's like I'm in a black void, trying to reach the new story. This concept of morality is a very interesting human characteristic. What is real? How do you define real? If you're talking about what you can feel, what you can smell, what you can taste and see. Warning, this podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 119 of Embrace the Void, where paradise is a jug of wine, a loaf of bread, and thou by my side singing into the void. I am your host, Aaron, and I'm really excited about this week's topic. I was perhaps so excited during the recording that maybe I didn't manage this one in the most orderly fashion, but given this week's topic, you'll have to appreciate the meta on that. So let's make with the Hail Heiress. My guest this week is Brian Henriksen, one of my closest friends from undergrad and one of the people responsible for starting me on my dark philosophical journey. Uh, Brian works as a risk manager in banking and moonlights as the risk manager for our little cult. Uh, So, Brian, would you like to say hi to the void? I sure would. Hey, void. Um, As Aaron mentioned, I'm a risk manager in real life. Uh, for a for a, a large diversified financial services corporation, and on the side, I serve as the uh, independent director of risk management for the Embrace the Void cult. Mm-hmm. And uh, very early on, Aaron made a very intentional decision to ensure that your cult does not become kind of either a death cult or a sex crime cult. And so, my job is important. to help make sure that very important, very important to have the right risk management framework to prevent your cult from straying to the dark side and. And uh, that primarily uh, consists of looking around the Facebook group and uh, taking the piss <laughs> whenever it seems like anybody is taking Aaron a little too seriously because uh, it can't be had. It's an important role. Ego is the, de- the threat um, to everything. That's that's, that's right. ulti- always the source of the problem. And I'm so glad we finally get to have you on because I can't think of anyone better to discuss today's topic. Brian, ha- it deserves just so much credit for putting into my hands a variety of media that has shaped me and this ridiculous activity that we are here engaged in. Uh, Carnival, Deadwood, Transmet, Anathem, just to, like to name a few things. And 
most importantly for today, the Principia Discordia, which, um, for folks who are not familiar, is like the Tao Te Ching of Discordianism. Um, so we'll talk about that. I'm, I'm curious, Brian, where did you actually first hear about Discordianism? What's your origin story on this particular cult? Yeah, so before I dive into that, I'm going to take a moment to do my duty to plug Transmetropolitan by Warren Ellis. It's a, mm-hmm. a fantastic graphic novel. And I actually think probably the most important thing you can read to arm yourself for the kind of world we are slowly discovering that we live in, where identity is going to be completely fluid and none mm-hmm. of us will be able to prove anything because there's going to be no shared epistemic framework from which we can agree on truth. Um, and the journey of fighter Jerusalem and transmet through a, a post cyberpunk world is, uh, is, is the best thing that you can arm yourself with to face that reality. But yeah, uh, discordianism. Um, so I, you know, I came to discordianism, I think in a lot of ways by kind of knowing of it around the edges first, and then kind of learning later on that it, turned out to be a real thing. So Mm -hmm. I I was a very, very young computer nerd. And I was uh, taking AP computer science, actually, my sophomore year of high school. And I became aware of a command that was built into every Unix-based system. So any of your Linux systems, AIX, IREX, your standard Unix distributions, all of them had this command D-date, which returned the standard Gregorian date, but on the Discordian uh, calendar, and also included some random quotes from an alleged book called the Principia Discordia. And they were funny. They were weird. It was a strange command. It was actually until 2011, uh, a default utility for every distribution of Unix on the internet. So it's actually kind of built into the DNA of the internet. And it was just this very weird thing that I kind of knew of, but didn't think twice about. Uh, Until my sophomore, uh, after my sophomore year of high school, my family moved from New Mexico to Virginia. And um, I found myself kind of uprooted from all of my friends, all of my standards, sort of social support. uh, And and I turned to the internet kind of in the late 90s, mid mid to late 90s, you know, in the early days of Usenet, BBSs, Mm -hmm. and, and ultimately communities that grew in the forums of the early websites from kind of the, the first generation of HTML. I was going to say, I just think this is good because it's it's relevant for, like, we've talked some before on the show about, like, the connection between various kinds of countercultural psychonauts and the internet. So I think it's useful to understand that, like, this is, the, the internet is a, is a part of the background of this psychedelic cult that we're going to be diving into here. Yeah, and that is, that's actually kind of very critical because it was these very early mavens of, of the Usenet culture that grew up in the, the 1980s and 1990s on the internet, who were the earliest proselytizers of this Discordian faith. And uh, mm-hmm. and so I met a couple of them uh, in the forums of, of a website called Mr. Cranky. And uh, it was uh, just a, a movie review site where like a really like ill-tempered, cranky old man gave really <laughs> negative reviews of every movie that came out on a scale of one bomb to four bombs to a stick of dynamite for the worst possible movie. So like Spice World, the um, (laughs) Spice Girls movie, I think got a stick of dynamite. Mm -hmm. And um, kind of in the back, sort of back catalog, the more obscure reviews, there was a very thriving community of dozens of posters who regularly 
engaged in conversations, arguments, and flame wars on this website. And I made the acquaintance of a couple by the name of Discord and Gnostic Dogma. And they introduced me to the actual text of the Principia Discordia, a book that I learned was actually in print and that I could and did order from a now defunct company called Loom Panics that was based mm-hmm. in Yorba Linda, California. Yeah, and the ability to gain access to this book in physical form has always been sort of a funny part of the backstory of this. There's been various myths about which is the original version and things like that, but like everyone can essentially get it online now. But yeah, you were you were picking it up in a physical version at this point. Yeah, this was probably yeah, 1990, 2000. I think Loom Panics went out of business in the mid-2000s, and um, it's since been preserved sort of, you know, uh, for uh, in perpetuity on the internet. And uh, yeah, so that mm-hmm. was, and from there, you know, I kind of uh, uh, spun off into the, the associated literature that surrounds the, the Discordian book. There's, a, you know, several trilogies written by a, an author named Robert Anton Wilson that makes little use of Discordian philosophy. And there were, you know, comics online at the time. And, and then, you know, it was, just, it was a way of thinking that was very appealing to me. And so I kind of took to it like a fish to water when I, when I first discovered it in those early heydays of, of internet culture. Yeah, I can understand. I had a very similar experience when you first um, pointed me in the direction of it because it is just, it's tied in with so much philosophy and psychology stuff that I was very into um, already at that point. And it does seem to be like in the DNA, not just of like the internet, but you know, you mentioned um, Transmet, um, but also like the Invisibles and and various stuff by Alan Moore. That a lot of the like graphic novel counterculture stuff that has become sort of it seeped into the mainstream through things like The Matrix was was brewing in this material. Um, yeah. So. So let's talk about the, the theory some a little bit here now that we've we've laid the framework for where this weirdness emerges from. What do you sort of how would you try to describe like this is a silly question to ask. I always feel silly asking this question, but like how would you describe Discordianism, right? In any yeah. reasonable amount of time? Is it a parody yeah. religion is the opening question, I guess? Yeah, so um there there and this is this is kind of a, a fundament of Discordianism, but there are really a few different ways of answering that question and they're all equally true. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and so first and <laughs> foremost, and many most obviously discordianism is an anti-religion. Um, it is very explicitly setting itself up as other than strict hierarchical mechanisms of social control, which is kind of how it views traditional religious practice. And so like a great example of this in the Principia Discordia is uh, there are five rules for Discordianism, and, and one of the mm-hmm. five commandments is that Discordians eat hot dogs because hot dogs really thumb the nose at all the major faiths. So, uh, if you if you eat a hot dog, um, you're I'm gonna uh, wish I yeah, it's, it's on Friday before. specifically a hot dog. Yeah, on, right, yeah. so it's, a Discordian is required to partake joyously of a hot dog on a Friday. Uh, this is the definitive ceremony to remonstrate against the popular paganisms of the day. So you're thumbing your nose at Catholic Christendom, no meat on Friday. You're thumbing your nose at Judaism, no meat of pork. You're thumbing your nose at Hindic peoples, Muslim peoples, and Buddhists. And of course, you're also thumbing your nose at Discordians who don't want you to eat hot dog buns because not taking itself seriously is also a central tenet of the Discordian faith. Right. Um, and so the fourth commandment is a Discordian shall partake of no hot dog buns. Um, yeah, so 
that's kind of the easiest read. I think there's another level mm-hmm. at which discordianism is actually also kind of a, a really robust philosophy or philosophical framework of skepticism that really mm-hmm. resonated with me at the time. Because one of the things that discordianism really emphasizes is that we are the architects of our perceived experience in the sense that there's an unmediated miasma, what Kant would call a noumenal realm that's out there, the world as it is. And we perceive it, but we have to do through so mediate through, through mediation. And one of the central tenets of discordianism is that mediation is this reality grid framework where we kind of map our own ideas about how the world is to us onto the world as it is. And we make sense of the underlying disorder or chaos through these ordered frameworks that we, in essence, overlay or force onto the world. And one of the central mm-hmm. tenets of discordianism is that no two reality grids are the same. Um, but between individuals, they can all be equally true or false. And a lot of that is bound up in how useful they are. Yeah, so let's slow that down a bunch, I think, and 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 chunk it up some because I do think this is the this is what to me takes discordianism beyond like dudism, which is sort of a fun laid back version of Taoism, and there's a lot of Taoism in discordianism, um, and it also takes it beyond for me like the stuff like the spaghetti monster where it really puts an interesting a world of philosophy behind this, and it's one that is very similar again to like the Taoist description of. Um, the you know the undifferentiated reality or what we're gonna we'll see the like the discordians call the true underlying chaos of reality and then on top of that right you can lay various kinds of conceptual frameworks which you were calling grids um, which you know we think of this in the world all the time right people think of like you know, I'm going to adopt a particular structural analysis of this piece of art or something like that. And by that particular grid, certain things within that piece of art make sense. Um, and other ones look like maybe a transgression of that particular style or something like that. And so we create a world of a second layer world of like order and disorder, um, which, like as you said, is like sort of the Kantian phenomena of the world. Yeah, and so that's it, it, exactly right. So there are, there are very kind of easy ways to see that we create these reality grids, and, and critical theory is a really good example. You know, we decide that there's a particular framework or heuristic by which we're going to evaluate things, and that allows us to, if we take critical theory kind of seriously on its own merits, uh, mm-hmm. unobscure or, or surface underlying truths because of the way in which we're applying that. I, I think intersectional... Um, you know, uh, social theory does does a lot of the same thing. It says, you know, how can we look at this through different lenses to arrive at underlying truths? When I otherwise, if we didn't bring to bear, say, the reality grid of somebody who's experiencing a certain type of structural racism versus somebody who isn't. And so I think there are very obvious ways that we do it. And then mm-hmm. kind of discordianism goes a step further and actually says, and we're also making a really robust metaphysical and epistemological claim as well, which is that any right. claim of knowledge we have assumes a, a relativized or subjective reality grid. 
Yeah, and that's where it hops over from, like, I mean, it's, you were right, I totally agree that it has, like, the postmodernist elements to it, and a lot of, like, um, American pragmatism kind of elements to it in the sense of, like, evaluating the quality of one grid or framework over another in terms of its functionality in various situations. But then, like, you flip over to the, what we've talked about before on here with, like, Zhuangzi or Nagarjuna or someone like that, where it's like, but the true underlying reality is that all of these things are abstractions and don't actually cleave reality at the joints in any kind of way because it doesn't really have joints. It's just chaos. Yeah. And you kind of touched on sort of another thing that was very appealing about discordianism to me, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which is that it does have this this idea about ideas that's very um, sort of ideas have value in as much as they have usefulness and utility. And I didn't have a vocabulary for it at the time, but as I went through my philosophical education at UVA, at the University of Virginia, I came mm-hmm. to understand was pragmatism, and it was mm-hmm. a it was a, a an intellectual tradition that I that I really sympathized with, and I spent a lot of time with William James and and Charles Peirce, and, and mm-hmm. my time mm-hmm. at UVA was, as you know from our conversations at the time. Yeah, and you get so you get these really great insights in this. You know, it's like only seventy pages, the Principia Discordia, but it has so much stuff packed into it. Like a culture is a group of people with rather similar grids. Like, what an incredibly useful way to chunk you know, the way that people see the world by understanding, you know, talking about it in terms of like, which people have relevantly similar setups by which some things look ordered, um, and some things look disordered. Um, so I want to dive into that dichotomy a little bit. And I think the best way to do this, to bring it back down from too much pure theory is to talk a little bit about the like, mythology and symbolism behind discordianism. So why is it called discordianism, right? Why is why, why are we yeah. Aristians? Um, do you want to maybe tell that origin myth? Yeah, yeah. And you know, if, if, if you'll indulge me, I might just borrow directly from the, the holy text itself, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and tell the story of the original st- snub. Mm, not yeah. the original sin, the original snub. It's important. The original snub. Uh-huh. Well, I'm just going to, uh, rather than <laughs> quote from the text, summarize it because I'm having trouble finding the citation at this exact moment. Oh, yeah. um, but if Aaron, you want to send it to me, I can. But uh, okay, the story goes as such. Uh, Zeus decided that he was going to host a party for all the gods because that's what the gods of Olympus did in those times. They hosted parties. Now, the problem is uh, Zeus did not want to invite one of his distant kin, not, not really a daughter, but maybe a, a, a daughter of a, of a sister of a daughter, but uh, the goddess Eris, who was the goddess of discord. She was known as a troublemaker. She was known for, for, for asking uncomfortable questions, and she was known for generally creating uh, bedlam wherever she went. And so he hosted this party. He did not invite her. And uh, Eris, upon learning this, became quite huffy and decided that she was going to make some trouble for Zeus anyway. And so she crafted a golden apple upon which she inscribed the word Callisti, which means to the prettiest. And from a cover of a tree, rolled the golden apple to the middle of Zeus's party so that it could be discovered by all those in attendance. And then those of you familiar with Greek mythology know that then the argument over to whom this apple was intended became the kickoff of quite a bit of drama because <laughs> three of the goddesses involved all decided that it must have been intended for them because surely they were the one who was the prettiest. And as we know mm-hmm. from our readings of those at the time, uh, when the, the Greek and gods and goddesses on Olympus had to sort out differences between them, they generally did so by sending large armies of humans to war against one another. 
Right, and so this is the story of the beginning of the Battle of of, of um, Troy, of the Trojan War. So yeah. Paris is the person who is asked to decide which of the goddesses will get the apple, and they each offer Paris various things, and the last one offers Helen of Troy, and he takes Helen and, and books it, and that leads to the Trojan War. So, yeah, that's, that's sort of the origin myth of Discordianism, and, and it is deliberately feminist referential at, at that particular time they were i think drawing on um some feminist traditions and yeah and so we get the golden apple as the symbol of the spreading of discord amongst sort of stuff shirt um overly orderly individuals so how do we tie that then into the sacred cow right what's the what's the connection here because this is the other I think, yeah, major symbol so- we want to talk about here so as Aaron kind of touched on at the end there, the biggest uh, takeaway from this is that is that this was the original stum by those those who were the creators of order, and it was a it was a pushback from from the force of disorder, and and that gives us insight into what is sort of the underlying metaphysics of uh, discordianism, which is that mm-hmm. there exists sort of an undifferentiated miasma uh, or chaos. And there are competing instincts uh, within the, the human experience of the human psychology. And, and one is to assume or presume or in sort of inflict an order on that chaos. And, and this is called the aneuristic or sort of anti-chaos or anti-goddess of discord uh, principle. Mm-hmm. And there's also this counter tendency to see the disorder in the chaos, which is known as the heuristic principle. And so the sacred cow is the foundational symbol of discordianism, and it's it's a take on the yin yang that references the uh, push of the order and the disorder through a, a yin yang, but rather than sort of a, a circle of dark and light embedded in an area of light and dark, respectively, it's the uh, light and dark, and then there's a pentagon representing uh, order or the aneuristic principle, and then there's the golden apple of discord opposite of it, signed Callisti to the prettiest, representing the heuristic or disordered principle. And our experience of reality is is the competing tendencies to want to inflict Mm -hmm. either of these uh, understandings of the world on the underlying chaos and constant tension. Yeah, and again, this is like textbook Taoism stuff that like we've talked about yeah. in earlier episodes yeah. where um, you know, the ten thousand things arise from the yin and yang interacting together. Uh and again, like in Taoism, this is a I would argue that rather than glorifying disorder, Discordianism is actually a corrective religion in a sense. That it's a it's it it is only because we are overly order obsessed as a species that like discordianism has to come along and shake us loose of our sacred cows in a sense um so it it emphasizes the disorder the or the heuristic side of things but not because of order disorder for disorder's sake or something like that and not because like disorder is the truth because the truth is chaos and not and like disorder and chaos are actually different things in this particular metaphysics um disorder is things that are sort of 
understood in relation to a grid, but understood as being outside of the grid, but are still in reference to that grid in some kind of way. Whereas chaos is true, sort of radical chaos. And and the some of the founders of this stuff actually claim that they are some of the earliest proponents of chaos theory and the way that that uh, expresses itself in these kinds of philosophies. So there's just so many really good connections going on here. Yeah, and, and you know, and, and to sort of locate uh, Discordianism as a movement and some of the more uh, profane or boring real world influences mm-hmm. at the time. This was a this was a you know a, re- a religious belief as a joke and a philosophy that grew out of uh, the counterculture movement of the late fifties and early sixties in, in Central California. And so the Pentagon was a very intentional choice because it was designed to bring to mind the Pentagon of the military industrial complex, which was a very pressing concern in a Cold War America um, as a, a representation of this real sort of, as Aaron described it, imbalanced push towards order, especially kind of in a, in a when, when, when the Cold War very much seemed like a war of ideas and competing reality grids. And mm. uh, uh, these were these were also uh, men who were who were students of quantum, you know, er, early developments in quantum physics, quantum mechanics, and also students of of Jungian psychology. And so you see a lot of the intersection of that being expressed in this text in the Principia Discordia. This this notion again, yeah, that that um, there's there's a, a certain degree of of relativism, and and like you said, they they saw themselves as being some of the earliest proponents of the the chaos theory that now kind of rules the day in both mathematics and physics. Yeah, and I want to talk about some of the stuff that they were pushing back on cuz it it is very complicated when they when you get into the symbolism of discordianism because they you know, they they talk about the Pentagon as being great sometimes in like like glowing terms as it being part of the the ascent, the essence of things and that like that you know again order is particularly valuable in contrast with disorder but that that it can become uh, problematic in various kinds of ways and to talk about that they get into something called the curse of grayface but to explain that i think we should also bring in the other major text from the principia like aside from the principia discordia which is um the illuminatus trilogy which is this three-part book series by folks who wanted to develop this this world a little bit um further do you want to talk a little bit about about, like how you understand the Illuminatus trilogy and its relationship <laughs> to the Principia. Yeah, so I will. I will apologize to all your listeners in advance for um, what will inevitably be some some holes because it's been many years since I read the Illuminatus trilogy, mm-hmm. and it is not a book that lends itself to ready summary. Yeah. But uh, the Illuminatus trilogy is a book by Robert Anton Wilson, and it's really designed to be the conspiracy theory of all conspiracy theory books. And mm-hmm. so kind of at the highest level, it's a story about two private investigators who are trying to run down a series of bizarre events that eventually leads them to some sort of tie-in to literally every conspiracy theory any of you have ever heard of, with the exception of ones that have now been invented since 1983 or whatever the book was published. I don't know. And, I'm pretty uh, sure Epstein shows up in that book, now that I think I, about yes, it. Yes, like very, very, very likely that, that <laughs> there's an anger for Epstein didn't kill himself somewhere in book three of the Illuminati trilogy. It's, it's a big book, um, is what we're saying. It's a big book, and I, I've had friends who contend that every time they've read it, they've actually read a different different book and that it rewrites itself so you know it is a cursed text that it is a cursed text it's, it's, it's a challenging read um, it's a lot of fun it's very madcap um 
and uh, and it's and it's it's very zany, um, but it touches on kind of this the you know the Anakians, the, the the collapse of Atlantis, the ancient society of a prime, uh, mm-hmm. the Bavarian Illuminati, and Adam Weiss hops, of course, the the elders, the protocols of the Elder of Zion. Like if it's a conspiracy theory, it somehow works its way into this book, and the the kind of foundational premise of the book is that they are all a hundred percent true. So mm-hmm, it's, that's mm-hmm. the world that it exists in. And, and I think uh, sort of one of the other useful discordian themes that gets really developed in the Illuminatus trilogy is the notion of the Fenord, um, mm-hmm. which is I think one of the earliest examples of, of what today we might call an anti-meme. Um, the, the Fenord spelled F N O R D was a, I guess a we should have warned people now that we've yeah. just uh, exposed them to an anti-meme that is going to... Anti-meme is yeah. if you feel uncomfortable, that is by design. Um, but yeah, <laughs> if you've been feeling uncomfortable, it's because we've been saying the word Fenord this whole time and you just haven't noticed yet. <laughs> uh, the, the, uh, uh, within the Illuminatus trilogy, the Fenord is a, a method of social control that the grandmasters of these conspiracy theories use to keep people from seeing information that might lead them to expose the conspiracy by embedding it in this um, neuro-linguistically programmed word called Fenord that makes people uncomfortable and to turn away and forget any time they come across information that's being uh, covered by the Fenors. And then this kind of gets generalized into a method of maintaining low-level uh, social control by creating generalized anxiety across the population through widespread use of phenords through popular media. And that's one of the strains of the conspiracy theory in the book. So that's, I think, a really interesting concept that we kind of, as we think about mimetic propagation and kind of how ideas travel across cultures, do we also think about sort of ideas that that keep themselves from propagating across cultures, things that are intentionally taboo? And that's... Ye- yeah, and it's a great example of like how they innovate on the kind of Lovecraftian cosmic psychological horror stuff that they there's some there's some literal drawing on Lovecraft in the Illuminatus trilogy. Yeah, there's yeah. there's a Shagoth well, that one shows of the conspiracy up. theories that's true is the is the is the the great ancients of Dagon. Like well, the yeah. And here's a super creepy thing that I remember from the Illuminatus trilogy. There's a sequence in it where the one side of the Pentagon gets blown up with a bomb. Um, it was way, way before 9-11. Um, and a Shagoth escapes. That there's been a Shagoth trapped inside of the Pentagon all of this time. In the Pentagon, yeah. <laughs> yep, yep. And so it comes back to, again, this idea that, like, this structure that, that is supposed to represent order could literally be a trap for this creature that is essentially constantly mutating unfettered chaos. Yeah. Um, yeah, they pull in so much good stuff. They have, you know, psychic dolphins are featured uh, prominently as cool characters. I do recommend people trying it. And there's there's a little bit of downside to the Illuminati trilogy. Um, I think it was one of them, uh, maybe Shay, who, who was a... He wrote for Playboy a lot as well, I think, and like. And Robert Anton Wilson was an editor for Playboy as well. Okay, that's what I was thinking of. Yeah. Okay, and and like the trilogy has a kind of male gaziness to it that I think has not aged particularly well. It has some really cool female characters in it as well, but it definitely is because they do a lot of like sex magicy stuff in Discordianism as well. There's a lot of. what do you call it, Aleister Crowley kind of style um, sex blood magic um, that, again, feels particularly oriented towards a male gaze. Uh, but 
you know, I really do think that overall discordianism leans towards a feminist system and leans towards feminism and its symbolism in various kinds of ways. I don't know. What do you, what do you, you, what is your feeling about like how many people are into discordianism of what particular kinds at this point? Well, the, I mean, so just the God's honest truth is I don't meet a lot of discordians out in sure, the wild. Sure. Uh, yeah. You know, the, the internet has made it easier for, for those of us who are, who are, you know, serious practicing discordians to, to, to come upon one another, but it's, it doesn't come up at work. You know, it doesn't come up when you're, when you're dropping your kids off at the bus stop. And uh, it yeah, should, and I mean, I'm it really, really should. It should, it ought, it ought. Uh, but yeah, you know, the, the Luminatus trilogy is, when we say sort of male gazy, it's, it's, it's written in kind of a, a you know, a, a private detective noir-esque style that, that does tend to objectify the female characters. And I think, sort of the most charitable thing that you could probably say about it is, is maybe it was trying to do a genre satire thing. Um, but I, I think it's a, a case where if the target of the satire isn't clear, uh, it's a really hard to see how the satire lands. And so I, I think Aaron's mm-hmm. right to say parts of that really don't age well. Um, yeah. But, but you know, it's again, it's still a kind of a fun, zany, madcap read uh, and, and buried in there are these, these good ideas um, over the years, you know, I say I haven't known a lot of Discordians. Um, the, the few that I do now explicitly follow on Twitter uh, tend to be people who, who share a value set in common with mine uh, in terms of, you know, progressive, you know, empowering values that really focus on, on honoring and, and, and validating personal identity. Um, but mm-hmm. I think it, it's also fair to say that there's a, uh, a tendency towards irony poisoning that's prevalent mm-hmm. in the glib humor of the Principia Discordia that probably aligns well with some of the, the irony poisoned uh, meme culture that really grew out of that same something awful uh, Usenet uh, internet culture that spawned Discordianism. And, you know, we talk about, you know, the Keck and, and, mm-hmm. and, and the influence of, of, of the Kekistani and the, 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 you know, internet nihilists and kind of their prominence in culture. Now I don't, it's not a direct line, but it's not hard to draw a line between the kind of anti-establishmentism of discordianism and the anti-establishmentism of the Kekistani and the mm-hmm. pseudo-religiosity of discordianism and kind of the pseudo-religiosity of, of the, the followers of Kek. Um, but like yeah. any idea that it's, you know, yeah. it's any good idea uh, is is going to have, I think, tremendous upside and tremendous downside, depending on how it's applied by the people who utilize it. Yeah, and I think this gets into, like, why I think it's important to understand discordianism as a corrective rather than an end in itself, kind of, yeah. in a sense. Like, you know... I have a hard time ultimately fully, you know, this is the analytic philosopher in me, I, and they say this right in the text where it's like Western philosophy is mostly pre, pre, pre uh, mostly interested with looking at yeah. comparing grids Western and philosophy, seeing. Western philosophy is traditionally concerned with contrasting one grid with another grid and amending grids in hopes of finding a perfect one that will account for all reality and will hence, say, unenlightened Westerners be capital T true. This is right. illusory. It is what we Eresians call the aneuristic illusion. Some grids can be more useful than others, some more beautiful than others, some more pleasant than others, etc. But none can be more true than any other. And yeah, now, and I, I really... It says, I, the point is that little t truth is a matter of definition relative to the what grid one is using at the moment. Reality is the original Rorschach. 
Yeah, and like the Buddhist in me totally buys that, and the analytic philosophy in me is like, but wait a minute, um, because like I do think that if you truly abandon the concept of objective truth, you you prevent. There's nothing to prevent the slide into Keckland, and I think that's incredibly important from a moral perspective and from an epistemic perspective. That like we are in the current epistemic miasmus, partly because the heuristic principle has gone way too far in the age of the internet um but like you know i i'm also sympathetic to this as a corrective because as i, as I was trying to get to earlier when we were talking about the limonage trilogy there's this thing that they call the curse of Greyface, which is this idea that like there, you know there's a large chunk of human peoples who get way too caught up in taking their structures taking their grids way too seriously and you get people like jordan peterson who are like obsessed with order and think that chaos is evil and like that all we need to do is fully tame the feminine order like you notice how close his view is to like the exact opposite of discordianism so you know i get the value of that that trade-off i just um, well, like, here, let me put it this way, right? In the, in the text, it also says, because it's a contradictory text, that everything is true in some sense and false in some sense and meaningless in some sense, right? And then true and false in some sense, true, right? So it goes on and on. So I guess, I guess I want to say at least that like certain things are true in some senses that the Kekistanis can't deny. Would you at least buy that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm not, like I, I, I'm no, I mean, I'm a bit of a nihilist, but I'm no full-on nihilist. I, I ultimately believe that uh, we ought to be kind to one another, for instance. And and you and I might disagree on on the motivational picture that orients that claim. I'm a, you know, I'm a, a Humean emotivist, I think more than you are. But uh, mm-hmm. I absolutely, I, I think you're right to say that discordianism is best understood as a methodology um, rather than as a as a uh, you know, eschatological vision of how mm-hmm. we ought to orient society. It's really, it's a way of thinking and it's a way of, of remaining skeptical about claims. Um, and and mm-hmm. to give, to give our listeners some grounding on what we mean by gray face, just a, a quick paragraph from the, from the Principia. It's uh, this, the, the, the curse of gray face uh, originates in the year 1166 BC when a malcontented hunchbrain by the name of gray face got it into his head that the universe was as humorless as he. And he began to teach that play was sinful because it contradicted the ways of serious order. Look at all the order around you, he said. And from that, he deluded honest men to believe that reality was a straitjacket affair and not the happy romance and men had known it. And I can't think of a better way to describe someone like Jordan Peterson than describing reality as a boring straitjacket affair. Yeah. And like, even as a determinist, I, I'm totally bought into this way of approaching even what, you know, like, like whatever our world really is. I don't want to approach it in that boring, straightjackety kind of way. And so I think there is a life-giving corrective um, within Discordianism. And, so, and, and sort of to, to, to lend closure kind of to the, yeah. to the earlier question about what some of the principal tenets of Discordianism is, and that's, I think that's really the last one is a very life-affirming yes. Um, throughout mm-hmm. the, the, the Principia Discordia, there's a lot of poetry and a lot of very beautiful poetry. It's, a, it's actually the Principia Discordia that introduced me to the poetry of, of the Persian Omar Khayyam and his, uh, you know, sort of very romantic calls to embrace this world. And so that, that, that passionate, you know, yes, saying that, that life is something to be played with is also a very profound strain of the discordian experience. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so maybe we could, I want to draw on a few more pieces from the text that I think it'd be good to do a little comparative analysis for folks who might not be familiar with all the stuff they're drawing on. So there's um, this is on page 55 of the text. This is the the story of uh, Zarathud and the sacred cow. So it basically it's a parable again, a lot like Zhuangzi um, is, is I think what they're drawing on here. Um, it's a story of a, a young priest who takes his followers down to where the sacred cow, it says the sacred cow is, she is contentedly grazing. So understand they mean here both the yin-yang symbol and clearly an actual cow. Um, And he says, tell me you dumb beast, uh, demanded the priest in his commanding voice. Why don't you do something worthwhile? What is your purpose in life anyway? Munching the tasty grass, the sacred cow replied, moo. Upon hearing this... (laughs) Absolutely nobody was enlightened, primarily because nobody could understand Chinese. <laughs> and, uh, it, it provides a uh, footnote which says mm-hmm. Mu, M-U, is the Chinese ideogram for no thing. Mm-hmm. And this, so this is a very funny story, first of all, because that's a great pun. Like it's, and, mm-hmm. and, and part of the reason it's a great pun is because it's a call out to a very famous a Zen Buddhist story, and, and I can't remember the details, Aaron, and, and maybe you know them because you're far more learned about Zen uh, Buddhism than I am, but isn't there a story in Zen Buddhism where the punchline mm-hmm. is, is the Mu. master yeah. tells the supplicant that he needs to meditate on the word Mu, and, or the cow's Mu, until the, until the uh, supplicant understands that he's supposed to arrive at this understanding that Mu means no thing? So in the in the original version, it's about a dog actually, because in okay. apparently in Chinese, the sound that a dog makes is it comes out as moo. Um, and the the student asks, "Does the dog have Buddha nature?" And what the master says is moo, which is both the sound the dog makes, which indicates yes, and also this ideogram for no thing. So in a sense, no. So it's it's taken in some context to be. Um, your question doesn't frame the reality in a way where the answer can be in any way meaningful. So I am rejecting the framing of your question. And as you can tell, like rejecting framing is what the Discordians are all about. Yeah, and and obviously the the, the parallel here that once again we have an animal just making the noise it makes, mm-hmm. for its American audience where cows moo and not dogs. Right. It's such a beautiful update of it as a Americanized version of this idea. And and then, of course, it inverts the, the part where everyone becomes enlightened because they're, you know, sarcastic about all of this. <laughs> and that's and that's another thing it does a lot. There, there are constantly people being enlightened or not getting enlightened for the variety of the right and wrong reasons throughout the Principia Discordia. Yeah. Speaking of, it's worth mentioning another thing that they point out in the original text is that we are all popes. Um, because in, in sort of direct conflict with the Catholic Church version of only having one pope, literally every being in the universe is already a Discordian pope, according to the Principia Discordia. You That's are true. all infallible Discordians already. It's not that we've conferred this upon you. We've merely informed you of a feature you already possessed. Yes, yeah. Like, you, you now know that you are a pope, uh, and so congratulations, yeah. all of you, because you are great popes, true and right according yeah. to the principal uh, order of the Aristic Elysians. <laughs> so so um, two things we've infected you with here is you're a pope and you can now see the Fnords. So good luck with yeah. that. They often come at the end of like really depressing news stories. And now you're going to know why they feel so depressing. Yes. 
Uh, but yeah, so that was actually, that was another thing that really appealed to me about Discordianism uh, when I stumbled upon it was it's very egalitarian nature. It was probably around the same time that I became uh, uh, ordained by the Universal Life Church. And I actually got myself ordained mm-hmm. as a pope in the Universal Life Church because you're allowed to pick your own title. And I did that in honor of my being mm-hmm. designated one or, or being revealed as one by the Discordian faith. It's a very egalitarian. Not only are you currently a pope in whatever sect of Discordianism that you find yourself in, you, if you want to, can just form your own sect of Discordianism and make mm-hmm. up your own for it. You're actually strongly encouraged to splinter off and create your own sect. So, I mean, the Void sect is itself a, a Discordian sect, obviously. Like, we haven't explicitly said that, but, like, if it wasn't clear until now, um, let me just lay that one on the table. The early the early stories of Discordians are, are full of them excommunicating each other from various things as well. If you find footage of Robert Anton Wilson on YouTube and listen to him tell stories of kind of his early experience writing these books. They're constantly excommunicating each other as they come up with new ideas and, and have yeah. written over them. I, I do love that, like, we're all familiar now with internet sort of religions where you can sign up to be a part of the religion. But, like, even before that, they got ahead of it by, like, one step further and saying, you're already part of the religion. Like, you don't, you don't even have to send us anything. And if you did, it would be hilariously redundant. So congratulations on already being a thing that you didn't realize that you were. Um, so I think, yeah, I just love so much of the way that they got ahead of things. And I also noticed as I was reading back through the Discordia, they use the word void a lot in this. And I didn't remember that when we started this show. That was clearly imprinted in a subliminal method upon me. Yeah, because even in the table of contents, that that section that we like so much about reality grids is subtitled Void's Daughters. God, that's fucking weird, man. It wasn't even in the forefront of my brain when we were putting all of this together. I think one of the things that can't be stressed enough is is it, it holds up. The Principia Discordia is a profoundly funny book. Like mm-hmm. it has five or six jokes on every page, and all of them land. And and I just it was like it was so irreverent and it was so blasphemous when I first found it. Like one of my favorite pages that to this day is one of the jokes that I tell people is a a telegram to Jehovah Yahweh that simply reads, "Dear God, stop." This is to inform you that your current position as deity is herewith terminated due to gross incompetence. Stop. <laughs> your check will be mailed. Stop. Please do not use me for a reference. Respectfully, Malakwith the Younger. And I just read it at the time, and it just it, it just resonated with me because I've been thinking it for so long. Like, either there is no God, or if there is, and this is the best he can do, maybe we should fire him and give somebody else a try. And that... You know, to 19-year-old me, that was just so outrageous and so true, and I just really (laughs) grabbed onto it. Yeah, there's so much of that, like, resistance of structure built into this. It feels sort of Luciferian in a lot of ways. Like, you can see sort of the Church of Satan coming up out of this in various ways. Um, And as I talked about earlier with the, um, the Invisibles graphic novels there's a lot of cool stuff that the that these psychonauts sort of go on to do to talk about um i think they call it later things like the iron prison or things like that like this the idea that we are sort of you know beings of chaos that have that have ourselves become trapped in these patterns of order and that we it's sort of an illusion that's holding us in suffering and that we could get out of that um in some kind of way in um in the invisibles they set it up like there are these two universes the order universe and the 
chaos universe and they are intersecting in this weird way and creating our universe but that the order universes become sick and i think that's often like the important thing that i want to come back to here is that like it's it's not that order is bad it's that in the current world our need for order has become sick yeah and our need for an order that erases that that Mm -hmm. that obviates that tries to ignore the disorder rather than work with kind of constructive disorder. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So is there any of the other things, let's start to get a little close to the end um, that you think that are important to touch on or take away from discordianism that we haven't sort of gotten to here yet? Um. Yeah. So I think, I think the one thing that, that I sort of, to this day carry with me as, as a practical application of discordianism and it sort of harkens back to this notion of reality grids and it's one of the things that i learned when i was an undergraduate philosopher and religious studies student and one of the things that continues to serve me well as i collaborate with people in a in a corporate setting is this this notion of the charitable reader the idea of assuming positive intent and fundamentally for me it's always been the person with whom you're disagreeing with or the person with whom you're having an exchange of ideas with thinks they make sense on some grounds. And so to me, that always meant if I don't understand what they're saying, or it seems confusing or dumb to me, what I'm being given is a a, a view of their reality grid without seeing all the other dots around it. And so I've always tried to take it to be my charge in those situations to do what I can to help, you know, infer surface, ask questions about to understand those rea- those dots around the part that I don't understand, because I really think it's important if we're going to try to build consensus to understand where, you know, as we said, our, our cultures have overlapping reality grids and where and where maybe our individual differences don't. Um, but, mm-hmm. but, you know, this, this idea of, of assuming that everybody has a, a truth and I, you know, I hate to say a truth that's true to them, but, but, you know, it is. And so that's, that's one thing I've taken from it as a matter of actual practice uh, and I think about it a lot sort of to this day. Um, mm-hmm. And I think you're right, Aaron, uh, that, that we also kind of need to push on what, what push back on, on a tendency towards nihilism and discordianism. It's all well and good to say nothing matters. Um, uh, but it's, I think, more constructive to say we think the wrong things matter and, and here's what should. And I think mm-hmm. that as we highlighted, discordianism provides a great methodology for understanding how and, and why we should be skeptical we probably need to look beyond it if we're going to start grounding value in, in in figuring out what we're looking beyond it for yeah and i mean the discordians love the idea of you being a discordian plus something else right as we were talking yes. about earlier this is not like a docs axis uh, a belief-based tradition where you have to adhere to only the discordian belief structure they i mean since the belief structure itself is not even consistent <laughs> it's not it's not like you could only even follow just discordia um yeah so i think the other one thing that i would add here is they they try to reformat our way of seeing the conflicts the yin yang conflicts in our universe from just mere order versus disorder where like disorder is the bad thing and order is the good thing and instead they talk about creative order and creative disorder versus destructive order and Mm -hmm. destructive disorder and they emphasize that like we should focus on having creative order and disorder together and that'll promote sort of the most flourishing way of living and i'm not totally sold on this because i also think that like destructive 
um, there's like the, the cycles of the universe involve both creation and destruction. So in a sense, destructive order and destructive disorder are also part of the way that things have to be. Um, it's just a matter of all of these things being in balance. So I think that that to me is a very valuable takeaway. Yeah. And we can leave it. We can end with the game. Of course, there's the I think game, which yeah, is uh, yeah. right. Do you yeah, want to explain uh, the rules so, of sync? <laughs> yeah. So um, first, everyone listening, uh, the Principia Discordia uh, is available in its fullness uh, online at www.principiadiscordia.com. It is 75 pages long, uh, and it involves uh, a lot of great poems, jokes, philosophical treatises, and games. Uh, and this is a game I've actually played. It's a, a game for Discordians called Sync. Uh, oh. Sync is played by Discordians and people of much ilk. The purpose is to sink an object or a thing in water or mud or anything you can sink something into. So sinking is allowed in any manner. To date, 10-pound chunks of mud were used to sink a tobacco can. It is preferable to have a pit of water or a hole to drop things in. But rivers, bays, gulfs, and I dare say even oceans can be used. I've played a game of sink in the ocean. Turns are taken <laughs> thusly. Whosoever has some junk, get up in the air first. Duty is going to be the duty of all persons playing sink to help to find more objects to sink once an object is sunk. Upon sinking, the sinked shall yell, I sink it, or something equally as thoughtful. Naming of objects is sometimes desirable. The object is named by the finder of such an object, and whoever sinks it can say, for instance, I sunk Columbus, Ohio. It's amazing. Like they were inventing stupid internet meme games like 20 sure. years before anyone was even on the board. Oh, so good. We, should, we should make sync into a YouTube video. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. like like sync could be planking. It's just it's just the same thing. God, it's so impressive. So I, I think we've we've done I mean like there's obviously there's could be, you know, so much more that you can always get to yeah. with this cordianism, but I think we've over probably overloaded people already with all of like yeah. the weirdness that is all of this. Yeah. And it just gets weirder and weirder the farther in you go. You know, I, I would add, you know, I think probably the most valuable thing out of the Illuminatus trilogy, maybe it also provides entree into the mm -hmm. broader work of Robert Anton Wilson. And mm -hmm. I would just recommend to any of your readers who have an interest uh, in, in psychology, neuro-linguistic programming, or kind of understanding how the way we use words helps frame our understanding of reality. Uh, if, you're, if you're a fan of um, Don't Think of an Elephant or any of George Lakin's works on framing, um, I think mm -hmm. Robert Anton Wilson is someone I would strongly recommend because he has a very interesting way of thinking about um, how we use words. Yeah, I also hear the book Zen Without Masters by Camden Bernars is a pretty good sort of Zen Buddhist approach to a lot of Discordian stuff and that Wilson was involved with that a little bit. Yeah, so, yeah. Lots yeah, of Yeah, no, Quantum things. Psychology is the Robert Anton Wilson book I'd probably recommend. Mm, mm -hmm. uh, uh, he wrote that in 1990. <laughs> and I bet yeah. it's it's woo as fuck, but... Um, yeah, so, uh, and, and like... Fair warning, you're most likely to find Robert Anton Wilson in your most low, uh, your purveyor of crystals uh, or other healing items. That is, that tends mm -hmm. to be where he gets shelved. Yep, he is popular with that crowd, I would imagine. Yeah. I mean, it's hard. Like, I really do value the skeptical approach stuff that these folks were doing, and you can see how important it was in the time and the place that we were doing it. And you can also see how it is is exactly connected, you know, like directly connected to our current crisis of um, just utter epistemic collapse. 
So I don't know what to do about any of that. Um, I don't really have a solution. So maybe we just go to the lightning round. Yeah, let's do that. (laughs) All right. So are you ready for our lightning round? So for folks who are not familiar, uh, we do this at the end of every show to gauge people's beliefs. In this case, to gauge what kind of grids they are working with. Let's use our terminology here. So I'm going to ask you uh, a series of things, and you're going to tell me whether those things are real or not real. You do not need to define your grid ahead of time, though you are free to do so afterwards. Um, you are not allowed to hedge in the application of your grid over the course of this process. Uh, do you have any questions? Um, no, I uh, just for, for all your listeners, I am an unabashed, uh, full-throated uh, modal realist in the style of David Lewis. So I <laughs> robustly believe in possible worlds. Let's get it on. <laughs> so that's, that's a good one out of the gate there. Right. All right. So are you ready? Yes. Is your readiness ready? Is it real? God damn it. Fuck that up. Is uh, real? Yes. Yeah. Good. Okay. Is the external world real? Yes. Are colors real? Yes. What about phenomenal consciousness? Is phenomenal consciousness real? Am I allowed to ask you to define phenomenal consciousness? What it's like to be a thing. Is what it's like to be a thing real? I would say, yes, the experience of being a thing is real. All right. Free will. Oh, uh, no, nope, not answering that one. (laughs) Not answering or answering in the negative? Uh, I, I, I have, I have, I, I, I do not believe that we can uh, epistemologically ground free will, but I believe that we act as if, in that sense, it's pragmatically real. Oh, I gave you way too much freedom on that. That's what I get for having a friend on the show. Um, <laughs> selves, selves, selves are real. Okay, genders. Um, I mean, like real in a very quotidian sense. Like it's they're uh, not real. Sh- you got you got your real that's all you get race same like in a very quotidian sense uh-huh same for species i'm guessing species i think species is probably more robustly real than race okay. or gender. morality huh. yeah okay i'll give you morality it's real <laughs> uh, rights rights um well i mean Within a context, yes, they can be real. Okay. Knowledge? Uh, boy, no, no. I don't know <laughs> that we have a lot of knowledge about anything. I'm going to go with no, not real. There's no real knowledge. Okay. Gods? Nah, no. I mean, I mean, in the same way that Sherlock Holmes is real, yes. Uh, society? Yeah, okay, it's, it's real. Numbers? This is a great litmus test. Um, it's it's yeah, so number, hard, numbers, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, numbers are definitely real. Okay. Uh, holes. Holes. Uh, like, okay, like if we're talking about like Bertrand Russell cluster description theory, yes, holes are real. <laughs> I'm not letting you explain any of that. Chairs. <laughs> I have no intention of explaining any of that. Chairs are absolutely real. Okay, sandwiches. <laughs> i hate you um, i know i understand i hate me too 
you know sandwiches are a sore point. Yeah. I know. Um, not, 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 not anymore. Sandwiches were real, but they've been ruined. It's, for, it's folks, for folks who are not familiar, we have to pause to explain this. Um, Brian and Eileen are pretty convinced that the collapse of the use of language to consistently denote specific things in reality is my fault for the for the sandwich hot dog thing. So, yeah. yeah, sandwiches used to be real, but they no longer are. Yeah, that's my bad. Uh, science. Yeah, science is real. Okay. Natural laws? No. Okay. Beauty? I invite anyone to tell me how inconsistent I'm being, by the way. You can find me on Facebook or Twitter. Um, beauty <laughs> is, is definitely real. Mm-hmm. Causality? Eh, that's... That's a, that's a knowledge claim. So I'm going to, for once in my life, try to be consistent and say, no, causality is not real. Okay. And finally. Is. Figure that one out, folks. Dharma. Dharma. Um, the Dharma initiative. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Dharma's. Uh, yeah. I mean, if, if anything else I've said is real, Dharma's real too. Yeah. Or if you prefer the Western monad. That's pretty much yeah. the same thing. Um, okay. Well, you survived. How do you feel? Um, embarrassed. I don't. I. I look. I look forward to somebody mapping uh, those answers uh, to tell me what I really believe because I'm no longer sure. It is a weird psychological experience to go through, right? Because you just start it off is. like this is fine, and then like halfway through, you just hate everything, and it's it's, it's well, so like, weird. Like I, I like I have a desperate need to contextualize every answer because as a true Discordianism, a Discordian, everything is real. Or not real, depending on your grid. So, like, like, we don't Both have that real right. and not real and meaningless. Yeah, it's rough. Yeah. Oh, but it's so much fun. It's just, it's so weird that we like in all of our philosophy years, you never see anyone do anything like this, right? It's always just in one field at a time. You never f- see anyone try to like have to lay it all out at once. It yeah. makes me so happy. Well, thank you so much, Brian, for coming on and helping me try to make our way in a straight line through the utter chaos that is Discordianism. I hope folks who were interested in this particular topic have gotten some sense of what is going on here. And really, like, you should just go read the Principia Discordia. And then, if you want, maybe the Illuminatus Trilogy, um, because there's just there's so much good stuff in there that that is all through our culture now. So... Yeah. Brian, do you want to let folks know where they can find you to tell you about how wrong you are about so many things? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So one, Aaron, thank you for having me on the show. And then, yes, just another another robust endorsement for reading the Principia It is 74 pages. And most of them don't even have a lot of words on them. Mm-hmm. A lot of pictures, drawings and doodles. And you can find me on Twitter at BC Henrock. That's capital B, capital C, H E N R O C K. And uh, I also hang out uh, in the Philosophers in Space Facebook group. I'm Brian Henriksen, and uh, you can see me, uh, you know, banding wits. Making fun of me as often as possible, which is an important job. Whenever whenever the polling's get carried away, which is unfortunately all too frequently because you are quite a guy, Aaron. Oh, thanks. Well, thank you again so much for this, and it's been fun, and we'll have to have you back on at some point. We have some other um, fun issues to uh, get voidy about. So uh, thank you very much. All right, thanks, Aaron.